super excited for y'all to get to hear what gets shared in this episode. It's really amazing. We have some te- technical difficulty. Uh, this honestly was probably one of the bigger messes I've had to clean up, but I think it all comes together well. And anyway, my girls are excited for you to hear it. That's why they're talking in the background. So enjoy. One. All right. Get ready for some awesome. And we're ready to go. And let's start now. It's, it's kind of like Pam with Michael Scott. Like where she like yes. the first first time give a run through typically fails and so the second time all right online two you have Jan um, all right friends you know what that means uh, Jonathan Storm is back on the podcast as is our friend Jay Miller how are we doing today today fellas good good beautiful day in Arkansas let me tell you what happened to me guys I'm just gonna just jump right into this I was walking through my office um, and someone who was up here working in our food pantry, looked at me and said, you look like Fred Durst today from Limp Biscuit." And I have been reassessing every decision I've made in my life that has led to this <laughs> moment right now. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I'm working on, guys. Is I mean, it today? Yeah, like that happened like two hours ago and I haven't recovered from it yet. Lent is a time for hard truth, man. It's a t- time to be confronted with some things. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, Lent is the time you look in the mirror, but maybe for Lent you should give up looking in the mirror. Let's see. Mm. I'm looking up Fred Durst. I want to see what he looks like. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to do that. I haven't. I just remember Lent biscuit, and I don't want to be associated with that uh, anymore in the future. So uh, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to change it. Do you and- think they were reflecting on your look or your attitude? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know enough of Fred Durst's catalog to really engage with that. Um, so let's just hope it's the look. It can't be good. Like, it can't be a good thing. Did no, you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's jump into this whole failure conversation. Uh, it was like six months ago where we were doing the uh, New Age slash Stone Age podcast. And someone recommended that we talk about failures and i don't know which one which of you it was was it you storm it uh no i don't, I don't know. know jay did you want to go was- i think i think i remember me we were kind of we kind of got into it i think i remember saying like you should do a whole series on that yeah yeah that's right i remember you saying that too jay okay well jay the people listened. the people remembered and uh so if you guys know we've had a couple episodes talking about fails in february and now it's march and here's the thing um someone said they wanted to hear it from you too like there was actually a listener request to have you guys talking about the failures now i don't know how i interpret that would that be because they think you guys are experts on the subject matter i don't know would it be because they think you're great spiritual guides who can lead them through dealing with failure? Maybe that's it. However you want to interpret that, feel free to do. But nevertheless... Hey, question. Have yeah. you been asked to talk about your failures? Never. Not once. I just think the listener sense that your guests might be a little more well-adjusted and able to handle it than you. Oh. oh. Or, or maybe the guest project of the podcast host has failed. <laughs> they, our failure is centered around, you know this hmm. okay well that's that's really nice i'm glad you guys came on the podcast my good friends suzanne stabile and steve carter were much more magnanimous and thoughtful with their responses to this question but nevertheless i mean good- your listeners should know that storm and i were debating which one of us will own the failure of helping you be a better person because we, we kind of share <laughs> yeah. that in common so <laughs> yeah. just think your listeners should know that's 
That's where this could have gone. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You're welcome. With friends like you, who needs enemies? Um, you knew what you were getting into when you sent us the link. Just yeah. the wounds from a friend, Luke. Well, there there are a lot of wounds that come from both of you. Uh, different, but equal in amount, uh, but definitely different wounds. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, okay, let's start with the first question about why we're talking about failures. And my theory has been that other people's successes in some ways like puts them up on a pedestal. And when someone's on a pedestal, they're different from us. I first noticed this when I was uh, like grad school, probably, and there was um, a guy named uh, Matt Chandler who was a speaker at this Bible study, uh, and he was kind of a big name in, obviously now he's a big name in a lot of Christian circles, but there would be people who would say things like, oh, I remember Matt back when, and it was almost like they were trying to like describe his humanity, which... I, not like discredits the guy that they saw on stage, but like mm-hmm. brings him down to like their levels, kind of the field that I felt of what they were trying to do. And so I've always had the theory that like success, like differentiates someone from us, but failure in some ways connects us. Do y'all think that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Everybody, failure is universal. Um, I mean, everybody's gonna, if you live long enough, you're going to have it. So that as a thought experiment, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I was also just thinking, it's also the, it's the one reliable place where we share an experience of God, just be, just because, mm. you know, strength made perfect in weakness, right? And mm. all the different ways the scripture kind of talks about meeting God in weakness or vulnerability or frailty. And so if like part of how we bond with one another is our shared experience of God, I think that's like another layer on that. Mm. So we meet God as we step into our weaknesses collectively. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I almost picture like this aquifer. I think that's right. right. There's like a shared aquifer under the surface. It's an aquifer of God. And, you know, I have my, my little plot of land. It's like my life. And you live on your plot of land. It's your life. But there's like this shared aquifer underneath. And it's not the thing that we reach to above in the heavens. It's, it's actually the thing we drop down into um, at frail points. You I mean, know? I totally... I totally know what a shared aquifer is, but for the people who are listening, that might not. Or for people without running water in certain parts of the country. <laughs> yeah, but like under the surface, there's water. There's these uh, water resources that, you know, kind of transgress any boundaries of land or property. And your well taps down into the same aquifer that my well taps down into. But I, just, I like okay, the image because it, it's an image of going down, not up. Right? Yeah. It's an image of kind of descending into God not aspiring up to God. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I've always found that like the people I feel most comfortable sharing my struggles and my failures are those who've already gone in front of me and shared theirs, theirs with me, like, and they're the failure they've Mm -hmm. experienced. In some way it becomes like, Hey, I've been able to come down here to talk about it, to be honest about it and to be real about it. And in some ways, like they become like the guide and they become like the, um, to use your metaphor, almost like the uh, the ladder that lets me descend into right. what's what's always there. Like it still exists within me, whether I want to access it or not is up to me. But like they become the guide that has like the light and says, "Hey, come down here. It's okay. We can survive this together." Have you ever been to y'all ever been to twelve step stuff? Yeah, yeah, I've jumped in, in a couple of meetings. I've not. I been mean, in, they're the safest people in the world. Yeah, yeah, I've not been in, but I'm cl- very close to one person who's doing the steps and some others and 
Yeah, I find it to be like a really, uh, apparently it's really good stuff. We have, uh, Luke and I have a mutual friend who had an affair. He was in ministry, quite successful guy. And then he lived in Abilene for a while when I lived there. And he was the safest person in the world for me because he had hit kind of rock bottom. Like, I just let him know everything, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't because I was trying to, like, make him feel better. It was because I felt so safe and kind of, he was just trustworthy. I, I don't know why that is, but. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've interacted uh, in similar settings with different people, and I felt the same way. You know, I, one person I knew who, you know, blew up their life, and I knew him before, didn't know him that well, but they blew up their life, and I spent more time with them. And in some ways, like, after they blew up their life, like, I felt more connection to them. Because always before, it was like, what's real? Like, how much of this are you really putting, like, putting out? Because you want people to see this about you. But in some ways, like, when you hit rock bottom or you get pretty close to it, you like you give up playing the games that typically mm-hmm. distance us from each other. That's right. I had a, uh, I had a experience at a, um, safe house in Nepal. Back when I was in Abilene, we went to work with eternal threads. You know, yeah. that organization, Luke, yeah. um, these girls had been sexually trafficked and it was, you know, they'd been rescued from it, but they culture of shame and honor, they were just the bottom of the totem pole. And so they wouldn't talk about it. Um, that was one of the hardest things. Like they wouldn't get counseling or therapy or anything. Cause it was just so shameful. Uh, and then we go to this one safe house and we'd been on the road all day long. It was super hot and, uh, we were ready to go to bed, but they want to have a Devo to which we're like three Americans. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's what we were wanting a Devo in another language. And so we do, and at one point, this young woman, she was probably 17, she'd lived a really la- hard last couple of years, and she says, and it's being translated, she she says something in Nepalese, and then the translator says, she says, I would like to share my weakness. Oh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. I would like to share my testimony. And that word, testimony wow. and weakness were the same thing like it's and i think that's that's the secret sauce of jesus like your weakness is your testimony mm-hmm. that that's yeah, really that's good yeah all of our stories comes from like our weakness like that's the mm-hmm. first thing about it suzanne uh stabile said something about how success seems very elusive to her. And she said, Luke, I, f- I feel like that's probably with you, which is definitely the case, which is why, like when I think of like the failure I'm most thankful for, like I think of failures f- far easier and they seem far more abundant to me than successes. Do y'all feel that success is elusive to y'all? I mean, I know, I know part of this is like Enneagrams and personality typing and all that stuff. Um, but would you say that's your experience or not? Uh, I'm kind of processing in real time. Um, I, I remember hearing you and Susan talk about that. And I was kind of intrigued. Um, I don't know that I... Uh, to be honest, I think whether this is a personality type thing or just a life story thing, I think any level of survival in my own life has been a surprise to me. 
so success feels so irrelevant as a category. Like, huh. not that I don't, not that I don't like want, you know, not that I don't have aspirations or dreams that I want to hit. But I think um, most days my gratitude list includes the fact that I'm like a living, breathing adult at the age of 39 who can pay his bills. And, I don't know. I just there was enough like frailty and vulnerability oh. um, that I knew about myself growing up that survival feels like a yeah feels like a uh, a win. Well. I'm not the host of this podcast, but I'd like to hear more about frailty and vulnerability growing up because I, I feel when, one of the common things I feel with you is that it felt like we both had success pretty early in life in ministry and. Um. Anyway, I, I felt the same way because I I grew up poor and but on once I got in ministry, people didn't see that. You know, they right, they didn't right. know that you know like I had a scarcity mindset and um all that stuff. It just looked like winning, but it felt like any minute this could be taken away. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I get how somebody watching my life trajectory might feel like it's been marked by success. Like I get, I can, I kind of objectively like see that, but inside my own life, inside my own body, inside my own story, I think, um, uh, you know, I was, yeah, I was just really, um, there's just, I feel like uh, kind of every era has been marked, especially growing in all my formative years, where my sense of self was forged, mm-hmm. and all of that process, I think, I felt much closer to frailty than strength to whether it's social mental spiritual emotional um so then i i think you know and i think this is one of those things too about like celebrity culture and all this stuff we all marvel at people who have these external circumstances that look great and then you find out that they're really sad or struggling and we're confused but it's like yeah there's mm-hmm. i don't think hardly any of us has a objective correlation between our self-perception and what it feels like to be inside our own life and then what it looks like on the outside, right? So I think by the time some of those things right. started happening in my life that looked successful on the outside, long before that, I had already kind of like had so many kind of layered experiences forged on the inside of uh, weakness. Um, that, that at that point, it kind of overshadows that, right? Hmm. Yeah. Jay, if I could jump in here, is this going to be pretty connected to what your answer to the question of uh, what failure you're most thankful for? Yeah. yeah. Do you want yeah, to jump in with that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, so the failure that I, I think I want to share is uh, the failure of my mental health in college. And I know that's like a certain kind of failure. It's not a moral failure. It's not a, you know, something to be ashamed of. Um, it's not me confessing like something I've done wrong. But it was like a breaking point in my life that in the moment I, I probably desperately wanted to find my way out of. And now looking back, like I wouldn't trade it for the world. So a uh, story here is um, I went through some childhood trauma in early childhood that I had repressed all my memories of. And so um, if you had asked me about those experiences in middle school or high school, like I would have looked at you with a blank face because I would have had no idea what you were talking about. Um, and then uh, the spring of my senior year of high school through uh, this experience at a concert actually, uh, sort of a trigger happened and it's like this Pandora's box opened in my mind and a bunch of memories that I had not um, been aware of just flooded my senses and they were um, memories that were really painful and embarrassing, shameful, uh, lots of trauma stuff. And so I go into college with this kind of whole new thing that I'm 
reeling from. Um, I had had like some mental health struggles in middle school and high school. Looking back, I realized I had some depression stuff coming up. Even in middle school, I had a little bit of um, sort of suicidal consideration um, that I didn't really have the language for back then. But um, mostly like I was, I was kind of like surviving. And then I, I would go into college um, reeling from these triggers and trauma and spent the next four and a half years trying to kind of work it out. And basically what it looked like is I would turn toward it and try to work on it. And then things would get really, really scary and dark. And so then I would try to walk away from it and I would kind of just try to manage my life for a season and that would work for a little while. And then something would happen and like remind me that I can't keep pretending that I don't have to work on this stuff. So then I would turn toward it again. And, um, for four and a half years, it was kind of this, sometimes it was two steps forward, one step back process of like working it out and then struggling. Sometimes it was more like one step forward and two steps back or one step forward and 10 steps back. Um, and, um, what that began to look like is like pretty acute depression. And so, I mean, I, like I failed a bunch of classes in college. I, like I couldn't get myself to like show up for life. And then, um, this, this kind of, these gathering clouds, um, they got darker and, and more severe and it went from just like not being able to get out of bed to, um, to like being in the middle of my day and just being like overcome with emotion, usually, usually like sobbing, crying. And it wasn't like I could see it coming. There was no like parent triggers for it. It just like a switch would flip um, randomly. It felt like, and I, I would just find myself like overcome. I'd be like sitting in class during like a really boring college lecture and I'd just be, I'd be overcome and I'd start like sobbing. I'd have to walk out of the classroom or I'd be, I remember one time I was driving my truck um, I can picture exactly where I was on grape road over the toll road on a bridge and out of nowhere, it just hit me and I started sobbing so hard that I couldn't see the road in front of me and I had to pull my truck over. And, um, again, like this had been growing and growing and growing for four and a half years, even though I was trying to work on it and seeing therapists and stuff. And so I, like a lot of days I would wake up and I would ask myself, uh, is the cloud still there? Like, is it still there? This kind of dark cloud thing that I, um, felt so many days and I kept, I kept hoping for a day when I would wake up and it wouldn't be there anymore. Cause I was trying to do my healing work. I was trying to like, you know, go to therapy and stuff and, um, pray through it, talk through it, work through it, all that stuff, you know? And, uh, uh I kept, I kept waking up and asking, is it still there? And then I remember there was a, a Tuesday in October, uh, 2004 when I woke up in my dorm room, and I asked myself, is it still there? And the answer was a very, very clear yes. And there was something about that day where I just, uh, something kind of snapped inside me. I was like, I can't do more of this. Like I can't, I, I can't keep abiding this pain. And um, I don't know why that day went the way it went for me. Um Like I, like I didn't try to harm myself. Uh, I didn't like try to take my life, but I'm, um, I don't, I don't take that for granted because I know a lot of people have a day like that. And the thing that, you know, makes sense in that moment can be, um, self-harm. And, um, so I'm, I'm really thankful that that wasn't the turn that it took that day for me, but I also understand how it can be for so many people. And instead, um, the events of that day, it's kind of funny. Like I kind of like, 
I feel like I kind of had an out of body experience. I kind of was observing myself acting. I, um, I got out of bed and I, I, gra- I grabbed my backpack and I put some, some, some clothes in it. And I, I don't remember knowing why I was doing that. I don't remember having a plan. I just remember kind of like going into like autopilot mode and putting stuff in my bag. And then I uh, walked out to the campus parking lot where my truck was parked and got in my truck. And I sat there and I tried calling a couple people. Um, by the way, right now, I'm just now remembering one of the other kind of things that like happened right before this was the counselor that I had been seeing, the therapist that I've been meeting with. Her assistant had called me a few days prior and told me that, that my therapist could no longer meet with me because she had too many clients. And so she had to just cut her client book. And so I just was no longer going to be able to meet with, with her. And um, I think that was a big part of it too, now that I think about it. So I like, I, you know, I got in the car and I called some people. And one of the questions that they asked me was like, why are you still meeting with your, with your therapist? And I remember saying like, no, they, they cut me. <laughs> um, I also like right now, looking back, I, I have so much sympathy for the people I called because I think I was hoping that they could do something like over the phone for me that like, they, they, you know, there was nothing they could do for me in that moment. My distress was so acute. Um, you know, there, there just weren't like, you know, quick solutions. Um, but after I called a couple of people, I hung up the phone and then, and then is where like, it really feels like autopilot again. I, all I remember is putting my, my truck in drive and then the next thing I remember is pulling into the parking lot of a uh, mental health hospital here in town, um, which is like a block from my house right now where I live, which is kind of weird. I, I, I drive by it every day and uh, think about it. Um, but to the point that I'll make later, like I don't think about it negatively. I think about it with gratitude. But that day I, I drove there and I like I walk in and there's a front desk for reception. And I, I remember just sort of uh, like, falling apart and um like sobbing and them asking what they could do for me and me just saying like i need help and them taking me into a back room and me choosing to admit myself um and then i spent the next like 10 days um there in like a psych ward and uh you know um not like a super pleasant place to be. I mean, in some ways it's like being a prisoner. Like you, you know, once you admit yourself, you have kind of handed over a lot of power, um, to the hospital. Um, you don't get to just walk out, you know? Um, and you know, my, my roommate was, a somebody who was suffering through, uh, dissociative personality disorder, which was kind of scary to share a room with somebody who was going through something so scary. Um, And, uh, man, I just like mostly spent the next few days, like totally unraveling. Like I thought I had already unraveled and then, um, the unraveling that happened there was even more extreme. And I just, uh, spent a few days, um, doing what now looking back, I realized was just grieving. Like, I think a a lot of what trauma does, and I'm not an expert on, on trauma, but a lot of what I think it does is it, um, it's the experience of things that demand such intense grief, but that grief can be so overwhelming that our systems get sort of um, flooded with it and then they can't process it. And so, you know, when I was much younger, I don't think I had the categories or the resources or the awareness to grieve those things. But there I was uh, in a later season of life and it just um, coursed through my body and I just like sobbed in these kind of heaping, heaving waves of grief for days and uh and then the clouds began to part 
And um, by about 10 days in, I began to feel like a very different person uh, in a good way. Like I could begin to feel the clouds lifting in a way that they hadn't in my memory. And um, so, so that was like the, the, the breakdown. I mean, that was the real breaking point in my mental health. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it for a ton of reasons. I'm grateful for it because it taught me that, um, that often like the level of grief that life demands of us can, can feel like it will defeat us. And yet what you find out is that we can actually make room for that grief in our lives. Um, that we don't, we can be, we can unravel and get put back together. And often the thing that's keeping us from being put back together is our insistence on holding it together, you know? And, um, I know in my own life, I'm really grateful for, uh, the perspective that that, that, that gave me about, um, the painful things that we go through. And I'll also say like in ministry, um, you know, I was just with a family in our church a couple of weeks ago who are going through a really, really scary thing. And one of them is about to go spend some time someplace else for some healing and they are unraveling right now. And I know that when I look them in the eye and say, you can let yourself be totally unraveled and trust that you're going to get put back together. I, that's not theoretical for me. You know, I'm not like, um, I'm not thinking that's true. Theoretically. I like, I just, I know it in my bones. And so I can say it from a deep place and mean it. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, but another thing I'm thankful for about all this experience is what happened after it, which is I come out of the hospital and I actually feel much better in terms of like that, that, that grief, that, that dark cloud is gone. But then I experienced this other really painful thing, which is um, anger at God. And I'm really, really frustrated and confused because it was like really uh, embarrassing experience for me too. Um, And let me just say loudly, I don't think that struggling with mental health is anything to be embarrassed about. I don't think that being hospitalized for mental health is anything to be embarrassed about any more than being hospitalized for a physical ailment. But at the time I was super embarrassed and like, you know, I went to this small Christian college and I, uh, I was like the piano player in the chapel band. Um, and we had mandatory chapel for the student body three days a week. And I'd, I'd been in that chapel band since the first day of my freshman year. So every Monday, Wednesday and Friday for four years, uh, like Jay was up there at the piano, you know, and then there was a Wednesday in October where I wasn't. And of course the questions start sort of getting passed around like, where's, where's Jason, you know? And then, the word spreads around. Oh, didn't you hear? He's, he had a breakdown, you know? Um, so I get out of the hospital and I'm not depressed, but now I'm just angry and I'm angry at God. And, uh, in my anger, I start, um, meditating on a Psalm of protest against God. And I was using Eugene Peterson's uh, version of, of the scripture where he sort of paraphrases and puts a lot of literary color on the text and I liked the amount of energy that I felt in, in the protest psalm. And so I had really zeroed in on this particular prayer of protest that, that said everything I wanted to say to God. Like, hey, you're fickle sometimes. Like, you're not as faithful as you claim to be sometimes. And I spent like a month, like I, I wrote this psalm in my journal, like word for word from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. And I, I just camped out in it for a very long time. But the funny thing was, so I was a biblical studies major and yet apparently not, not a very good one because like I didn't realize which Psalm I was using. 
uh, until about a month into this season where I, I looked at the number of the psalm, like the, you know, the chapter heading, and I was like, huh, why does that one seem significant? That rings a bell. And the, the irony here, the, like the beautiful irony here, is that the psalm that I had been camping out in for a month to you know, work out my anger at God for what I had been through was Psalm 22, which a lot of the listeners will, will probably recognize, is the psalm that in the NIV translation begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is the very prayer that Jesus prays on the cross. And like when I realized that, I, saw, I was like, why is Psalm 22 familiar? And so I, I Google it and then like in the Google, like in my search window, I can picture myself in the dorm room. I search it up and then I see it there. And um, the minute I see the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And realize that the very thing that I had found in scripture to express my protest was also the prayer that Jesus had prayed. I just... Um, in a really intense moment went from feeling the distance of God in my experience to feeling the um, imminent nearness of God specifically uh, through Christ. And um, I mean, that just turned everything upside down for me. And I found so much healing in that experience. And another reason I'm thankful for it is not just that it healed me from all that anger and pain, but it, it redefined my relationship with the cross. Because I think for a lot of my life, through the preaching I had heard and the theology that I had understood, when I looked at the cross, that was the place that I most felt the distance between me and God. That like, oh, that's the thing that God had to do because we are so far from God. And in that, and, and, but the effect of that, like that doctrine of that preaching was that I, every time I looked at the cross, I just felt further from God. And then in, th- in this moment, all of that got turned upside down. And um, from then until now, like I've, I've come to like look upon the cross as a place of, um, of deep, imminent presence from God with us in the hard things that we face. And like, I genuinely, I would say that I became a Christian again that day, um, but in a new orientation in terms of my relationship to um, the cross and to like what Jesus means for us. And so, um, so the failure, um, the big failure for me is like the failure of my mental health, the breakdown um, and I wouldn't trade it for the world for the things it taught me and for the way that I carry that with me today. You said that, uh, you identify with Christ on the cross. You're praying Psalm 22. You don't realize it. That's the text that Jesus quotes. Some refer to it as a Jewish death Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You feel that it is an act of solidarity that, uh, the cross with humanity's struggles. You're, what you feel transitions to anger. How does that help your anger knowing that God has a sense of solidarity with it? Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't like a linear analytical experience. That's All true. I know is like after about a month of like, I mean, if I could show you guys my journals, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of like impermanent marker, like F you God, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I actually had written out Peterson's version of Psalm 22 in my journal. And I honestly, I was like, even your own text, God says that sometimes you're fickle and um, you withhold yourself in ways that don't make any sense if you love us. And um, and then there's just one day when I'm like, Psalm 22, Psalm 22, that, that number seems familiar. And I just went to my computer in my dorm room and I Googled Psalm 22 Here's the ironic thing, by the way. I was a biblical studies major <laughs> and had been hanging out in Psalm 22 for weeks and had not registered the fact 
that Psalm 22 was Christ's prayer on the cross. So when I Googled it, the Google search window, the first result was the preview of the Bible Gateway page. It said Psalm mm-hmm. 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was just like in an instant. It wasn't, it wasn't like a thought that I didn't think my way through the healing at that point. I just, um, just kind of got. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then he just left. I think that's a sign of God disagreeing with what he just said. Man, I'm going to be much more reverent. Yeah. When I. Do you want to? That's that's pretty funny. What? Like he literally just cut off when he said God is distant. Uh, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, people. And now, and now he's back, coming back on. It was an awkward time. Jay, we were just saying that I think this is a divine uh, warning to not be so irreverent. Um, <laughs> Uh, ironically I had to go through that window again where it says you have to wait for the host to accept you again and I'm like I'm tired of waiting for the host to accept me especially when I tell my most painful stories Uh, no Jay like that's really sacred for you to share that with us and I I really appreciate that Um, I've heard you share that story in multiple different settings and you know each time there's just layers to it that I'm uh, just humbled to hear and so I, I appreciate you sharing that and w- what it kind of struck me with was um i think it's philip yancey's book soul survivors where going back to a mm-hmm. he talks about I, I wish i was an alcoholic and <laughs> the line that he has in there is about like one of the guys he he knows in there he says you know i'm real thankful uh for my alcoholism because you know every morning i wake up and i know i need a drink or i, I think i want a drink and i've learned that 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 taste that i want in my mouth is actually needs to be um, reinterpreted as saying like what I really need is not alcohol but I need God and out of that weakness there's a sense of re- like reliance upon God do you find that to be yeah like does your mental health like drive you into a need for God even though like there's a lot of like it's a complicated relationship that you have with God it is yeah and I like I uh, one thing I don't like one thing I don't think is that like God is the panacea for mental health in some night in naive simplistic yeah. sense, right? Like I think that's really dangerous theology. That's where we get a lot of like nonsense speed from pulpits as if mental health is always only a matter of like spirituality yeah. and sin or whatever. Right. Cause I think we're complicated things. Um, I think a big part of it for me is just um, to not identify because I still have I still have days when the cloud comes, not nearly as acute as it did then, but there's a difference now in being able to observe it without identifying yeah. with it, and that and that's the move where I really feel the grace of God sustaining me. Um, that I feel like through the experience, it's not that God promised a future without sadness, grief, trauma, or even depression, but that through the experience, um, God sort of graced me with the knowledge that um, we can abide yeah. those things. And to me, the difference, um, honestly, de- depression is not easy, but um, there's another thing that's harder, which is despair. And despair was the thing that um, really brought me to the brink. Can you define the differences? Yeah, t- to me, at least, to me, I experienced dis- depression is uh, something that we live with sometimes, and it, it marks you know, the moment that we're in. Um, to me, despair is when you begin to believe the lie that every day will be this mm. hard. The, the, future, the future is mm. already sort of faded, Fate, F-A-T-E-D, fate yeah. to yeah. be this way. Yeah, that's where I think things get scary in the human spirit. Yeah. 
Hmm. Um, when, yeah. like when I think about the two of you, like Jay, I know the way you understand God and the way your ministry is expressed and the way that you want to serve the world, like it always seems like this is like a like part of the flavor of who you are. And it's like, it, it comes through. So mm-hmm. to hear you say that, it's not a surprise. And uh, I literally wrote down uh, mental health. Like this is like 30 minutes ago in the conversation. And then with Stormont, like you just identified yourself as growing up poor. And like your heart for the world storm is super connected to your experience in Arkansas. And I don't know what failure you're going to say. I don't know what, where you're going to go with that. But when I think of you too, I, I think, man, Jonathan has such a heart for, like this group of people, part of the, like the way I understand your return to Arkansas is like these are, this is a, a, a situation of people, a, an experience of life that you're deeply passionate about because that's your experience. And Jay, when I hear you talk about like mental health and those who've you know entertained suicidal ideations and those who've like have mm-hmm. despair, like it's it, it's born out of your own experience. So I think it's really beautiful the way that each of you have taken you know, less than ideal situations and it's become the way that you serve the world. I think that's just beautiful. Mm. Thanks, man. I had never heard that part of your story, Jay. Um, So yeah, Mm. thanks for sharing that with us in the world. Um, So uh, when, when I was thinking through this, same thing Jay was saying, like there's so many that are, I mean, some that are just, humiliating that I wouldn't share because they're too intimate, mm-hmm. you know, sexual failures or addictions. Um, the, the, probably the thing that there, there's these two moments that kind of bookend each other. Um, I, I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but when I went to Sri Lanka with Leslie after the tsunami and we saw a blind woman get healed and then Leslie catches the Holy Ghost, um, first generation Christian, all that stuff. And so she really gets into like the um, charismatic movement. And um, I am very much against that, even though I saw this. I mean, it was you'd have to be beyond cynical to say that this wasn't this didn't really happen to this blind woman. Like I legitimately saw this happen. And, uh, but Leslie starts going directions that I just can't go because of my like education and whatnot. And also just my background. And she doesn't have that background. It's good. And it's bad part. And so for a year or so, I was just such a jerk husband. Um, And the more I would dig my heels in, the more Leslie would dig her heels in. So we got into this like kind of self-righteous battle out for like 12 months where she was like, you just aren't filled with the spirit. And I was like, oh, bless your heart. You just don't know the Bible. And that was really bad. That led us to have to get marriage counseling and therapy. And um, that was that was really good and it opened my eyes to some stuff that I had missed in the theology that I so prized. Um, and then when I moved to Abilene, I'm still in this phase, I would say, uh, and within the first couple of years, 
Um, I'm Enneagram three, wing four. Uh, is that what you are, Jay? I'm a five, wing four. Okay, yeah, that's right. So we overlap in moodiness. We do. Um, yeah. Which is Luke's favorite part of the- both of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things about threes is we tend to think like if somebody doesn't agree with us, we can win them over. Mm. And uh, I, I would say for the like 99% of my ministry time, that had been the case. Like, I mean, some hard stuff won over people with soldiers, children who were their soldiers in Afghanistan, and I was a pacifist. I was able to, you know, kind of like at least make my case where they respected it was a part of the Jesus tradition. Um, all that kind of stuff. Well, when I get to Abilene, and I got to be very careful about how I say this, but there was a person who was well-respected to me, and um, I couldn't win them over. And they were more than public about their disapproval of me. I, I very much wanted their approval. Um, and then they did some stuff that uh, caused me harm. And the, that's, not, that's not the failure, and I can understand their their perspective and stuff. This would make more sense if I could say more of the details, but I won't. But um, the failure in that part, was, I, I remember telling the preacher that was at the church before me, I hate this person. And um, <laughs> that, that was kind of like a moment where things started getting clear for me. Like, I don't think I'm supposed to hate. <laughs> I'm a pacifist who would kill. Um, the, so here, this is going to feel like almost a dodge because I can't say more of the identifying details, but I'll say this within those two years, because it's all happened within two, two and a half years. Um, what I realized was I had absolutely zero interior spiritual life. Mm. Like I went to draw down on something and it wasn't there. Like forgiving my enemies. I'm really good at preaching that until I have an actual enemy. And then Mm. what I do is hate them. Mm. Uh, I don't pray for those who persecute me. I gossip about Mm. those who persecute me. And um, I I think, so I I started praying the Psalms because all my other prayers were just super full of self-pity and Mm. um, I was just a a loop of what I should have said was and, you know, ways I could make social media posts that subtly say stuff that would just, you know, uh, jab people. And, you know, as the leader goes, so goes the church. And I don't like who I am. And I realize it's very little to do with Jesus. And um, I, there's a season where I don't even 
if I had to, if I could choose between running this person's life and following Jesus, I would have chosen running this person's life. Um, and so Randy Harris, my spiritual director, and I finally tell this to him, like, I hate this person. I, I don't think I should hate this person. Um, and I don't think I'll, I'm big. I'm not a big fan of the person I am either. Um, and so started doing contemplative prayer, which you guys know my personality probably well enough to know that is not my jam. Um, but it, it started giving me a center to work from and, um, that was by far not the hardest thing that I ever had had to deal with in ministry, but it was the hardest thing I had to deal with up until that point because mm-hmm. I had been, you know, I hated this guy and I'm pretty sure he wasn't, I don't know what emotions he would have said for me, but probably not anything pleasant. And I felt misunderstood and falsely accused. And so that solidarity of the cross, same thing, man. Like, um, I remind that passage in first Peter entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Mm. Let us entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And just, uh, you know, I think what I'm saying is probably a pretty common preacher experience. Um, because to be in church leadership is to be misunderstood and make decisions that you can't explain to everyone because it's, uh, and to be seen sometimes as a monster, even when you're trying to do something that's noble and good. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the, that was the one that was like, those two moments were key moments to me because they were like, I couldn't get where I was trying to go the way I was trying to get there, which Mm. was theology and information and rhetorical skills. Um, And that when I went to draw down on, you know, the spirit of God in my life, there was nothing there because I didn't need him. Mm. I hadn't like made space for him. And, And because of that failure, a few years later, when I went through my own season of depression, and, and in fact, two weeks ago, my wife had like a really bad couple of seizures, Jay, and was like comatose oh, and couldn't talk or move for like six hours. Oh, um, and I, anyway, with the last few hard times in my life, stuff that comes up that's like really out of nowhere and don't know what to do, my mantra and i texted randy harris when i was in the er not sure if leslie was going to live or die and i was just texting with him and said this is what we practice for because (laughs) when you have when there's some when when there is the when there's something bigger than your own circumstances or even your own life and body and your family and all that stuff then it or your reputation or I mean when you're smoking what you're selling if what you're selling is real then it it, there's something there and I would I don't think I would have learned that any other way except harsh criticism 
And so if it wouldn't be passive aggressive or, um, I mean, I've thought about writing a letter to this guy and telling him almost like what Joseph said with his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God used it for good. And I don't Mm. think he meant it for evil. I think he was trying to do something good too. But yeah. Anyway, I I would say that's, well, first of all, like I'll, I'll pass it on to Richard back next time I talk to him, uh, that you appreciate what he had to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so you have this interaction with someone who thinks to long-term interaction, who thinks terribly of you. And, you know, like you said, there is part of being a leader is having people misunderstand you. And I heard Lauren Daigle say this line once where she said, true freedom is allowing other people to misunderstand you. But the only way that we can have that sort of freedom to let others like misunderstand us is if you have like this depth that you can draw upon. And so as you narrate your story, like you have that moment where people misunderstand you and, or, or they rightly understand what you're doing or whatever, but they have a negative opinion of you that you feel misunderstood. And you realize that like there's no reservoir there that you can like, there's no aqueduct for you to tap into. And so you have to like grow from it. And it's crazy to think that, you know, years later when you're at like one of the worst moments that, you know, most of us can ever imagine, like the person that we're covenant with is like on her deathbed in your opinion, which luckily she, she's fine now. Uh, Rest of the story, she's okay. But like, Spoiler alert. Good spoiler, though. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you would have been able to withstand that, and I assume other adversities that you've experienced since then, because of you. this was like a wake-up call for you to go, hey, I've got I've to gain more depth in my soul. That's right. That's right. Like, life is hard, mm-hmm. and you can't charm your way out of it or persuade your way out of yeah. it. Um, and that was... Well, What's the co- that was just bumping into reality? Okay, so you tell the two stories. One, the like the the story about you and Leslie and the you know, theological tension you guys have. Um, it's it, it's funny you mentioned that. Like two nights ago, I'm talking to Lindsay, and uh, she's like, I forget what we're talking about. She goes, "Luke, you ruined me ever since you were in grad school, and you told me the story of Jonah wasn't real." And <laughs> we like twenty years ago. Like I'm going through like seminary and i learned oh well maybe it didn't really actually happen and maybe it's just a it's a it's a parable and like at this point like i would never fight someone over that or argue with someone over but like back then i didn't know how to handle like theological debates in like a real world setting with the person who's not like in that nerdy environment um but like there's a tension that in your relationship that you didn't navigate that well or that you like now you probably would have handled that differently right Oh, okay. Yeah, totally. So, Good grief. So, what are the, what's the correlation between those two stories, though? Um. So, uh, information was key to me, mm-hmm. and like this is like picking holes in information, and I'm just becoming more and more egotistical, prideful, um, self righteous, and um, and not self reflective at all. Not. There's no humility in it. It's just uh, okay. yeah. following Jesus. And I think this is the weakness of our tribe, Churches of Christ. Um, it's a strength and a weakness, but it's largely about information, right? And knowing the right information about Jesus as if that was the, the win. And then when once you you know bump into life, 
or have any kind of experience outside of that kind of the parameters of the information you have. Um, anyway, that that's kind of what I was thinking. Like those, when people talk about deconstruction or whatever, I, I think about grad school, like probably a lot of y'all, but I also think about those two and a half years as primarily, I was just so disoriented the whole time. And then I came out of it on the end knowing like, okay, what got me, this won't get me where I'm wanting to go, where I need to go. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. Well, man, I appreciate you sharing like both of those stories. And I appreciate you not like putting that person on blast and actually saying their name, which um, I mean, maybe the podcast would get better ratings if you did. So maybe I'll just dub in some, (laughs) some random name. Um, It was Mike Cope uh, who Jonathan hated. (laughs) Now, uh, who I th- and I told him I, he was the former preacher. So I told, "Hey, Mike Cope, I hate you." Mm-hmm. No, it's it's weird that, that he not. was the one you're telling that to, but it it, it <laughs> yeah, happened. So right. who am I to judge? But like as I'm hearing both of you talk about your failures, like what I hear both of you talking about, and even with like Steve and Suzanne, Steve didn't say, "Hey, you know, I wish like the first book I wrote made the New York Times bestseller list," or you know, I, Suzanne like didn't talk about, "Hey, I wish I would have had this." you know, a greater level of success, even though she's immensely successful. Like a lot of the things that we typically think of as failures seem really shallow compared to the stuff that really form us. And Mm -hmm. like the, just a, a relationship between one person and another or one's own inner life. Like those are things that affect us to a different degree. And therefore I think they offer us a different access to growth and maturity and, and ultimately to God than the kind of shallow failures that we typically spend most of our time looking at. Does that sound fair to you guys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like spot on. Yep. Hmm. Well, I've got to leave in three minutes to go pick up my kid from school. <laughs> and so it is a real shame that I don't get to answer the question of what my biggest failure was. And can you just Some? leave us on here and we can cover it? Well, like, here's the thing. Honestly, is that my failure is just that, like, I just try so hard and I work really hard and I can't leave my work. Like, I just take it home with me and I'm just, I, I just care so much about stuff. And that's my biggest failure. Are you bookending this with the office quotes? Because that's what, <laughs> that's what, he that's is what Michael Scott says. Yeah. <laughs> my greatest weakness is I work too hard and I care too much. Yeah, it's like the it, j- sounds, to, it sounds to me like you're just going to have to dedicate a whole episode to your failure. You know, I would, but... Maybe we, a few. little series. I would, but I got that thing with the stuff and the people. Now, I, honestly, like, <laughs> as, as you guys talk about what, what you're saying, sometimes... Like, it makes me think, man, some of the stuff that I focus on that I'm, like, frustrated about, uh, like, those are not the things that really matter. And, like, I'm, I, I wish I would have sold more copies of my last book. Yes, I wish, or the first one or whatever. Um, but, like, that's not, that's not the stuff that really matters. Um, you know, I think more of the relationships that have been tougher for me to, like, maintain or to cause flourish, like, those are the things that really matter. Like, the things that, you know... The things that create the cognitive dissonance between your core value for who you want to be and who you're revealed to actually be are much larger when it's the things of the heart and the things of like real substance, not like, hey, I wish I made more money. Like those things, I mean, maybe for some people that is your core identity. And so there's a whole other set of questions that need to be asked about you. But for the ones that like 
really care about things that matter. Like that's a different category. That's right. Well, I don't want to fail my daughters and not pick them up on time. So we're going to have to call this uh, an episode. But uh, guys, it's been great talking with you again. And um, I'm, I'm glad I could bring you two together. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> Thank you.